Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. It's one of my favorites. Hope you like it. Why do lions never play cards in the jungle? Because there are too many cheetahs. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel this week's conversations. You just got a joke from author Emily Spivak. That'll help break the ice. She compiled the best-selling story collection, Warren Stories. Later, we'll speak with actor Angelica Houston about acting, bad boys, and her new memoir called Watch Me. Also coming up, legendary sound engineer Glenn Johns talks about recording the greatest rock and roll songs of all time. Musician Kevin Morby picks tunes for your party, and author and celebrated chef Gabrielle Hamilton says her food isn't fine, it's excellent. She's very humble, but first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A deal brokered between the U.S. and China to greatly reduce carbon emissions. President Obama came out strongly in support of net neutrality today. The Rosetta Orbiter just ended its trip, and it successfully landed on the comet. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is a senior editor at Fast Company magazine. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about Disney's no-fly zones. Is this a new new ride on Disney? <laughs> is this like, or is this a way you get to skip lines for a lot of money? No, 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 no. Um, the skies over Disneyland have been declared national defense airspace. <laughs> Why? This is the home of Tomorrowland, where they research the future. Yeah, Space Mountain, actually a <laughs> missile silo. What are we protecting? Well, so this is a based on a law passed in 2003 that recently came back to light this week because the FAA posted a few very mysterious reminders to pilots on their website, reminding them, please don't fly over Disneyland or Disney World. (laughs) So Um, weird. Yeah, it is really weird. But actually, there's uh, significant evidence that the reason for this law is not, in fact, that we're terrified of terrorist attacks on Disney World, but Disney is trying to prevent aerial advertising. So does that go for other theme parks? It actually doesn't. A Disney lobbyist is credited with this um, provision tucked into a 2003 spending bill. Wait, so Bush Gardens, you can just no, you fly can with a biplane with like a, with a Bud Light advertisement <laughs> out of the back of your plane? <laughs> I want to say, though, that this is not a victimless measure. Over 100 aerial advertisers have gone out of business, um, and they say it's due to this no-fly Disney law. So like in Entire businesses were based on flying over Disneyland. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. when you're standing in line, you have a lot of time to look exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> These are That's crowds true. with nothing around them besides sky and maybe some yeah. Disney princesses. You need some reading material. All right, <laughs> Rayon Armancy, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. That's right. First, the history part. This week back in 1945, Americans got their first look at a French film so difficult to make, some consider it kind of a miracle. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It's tough to make a blockbuster movie. Now imagine doing it in the middle of World War II with Nazis watching your every move. That's what director Marcel Carnet did when he shot Children of Paradise. Often described as France's Gone with the Wind, it's an epic historical drama about artists and criminals in love, featuring thousands of extras and gorgeous costumes. But for Marcel and his crew, 
the shoot was as dangerous as it was glamorous. See, at the time, France was occupied by the Nazis. So Marcel's set designer and composer, both Jews, had to work undercover using assumed names. Halfway through the shoot, the Nazis fired Marcel's producer when they learned that he was part Jewish. Meanwhile, Marcel struggled to hide the fact that some of his crew were French resistance fighters. Occasionally, one of them would suddenly flee the set to avoid Gestapo agents who'd come around looking for them. On top of this, remember, it was wartime. There was a shortage of film stock. Electricity just kind of go out. Curfews meant the crew had to stop shooting at dusk. And to add insult to injury, at one point a violent storm blew in and destroyed the film's massive exterior set. Towards the end of filming, though, the Nazis seemed on the verge of defeat, which was great. Except when one of Marcel's stars turned out to be a Nazi collaborator, who, fearing retribution from his countrymen, suddenly left town. All his scenes had to be reshot with a different actor. Yet amazingly, Children of Paradise turned out rather well. In 2010, Time magazine named it one of the greatest movies of the last century. Said director Francois Truffaut, quote, I would give up all my films to have made Children of Paradise. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. On the line is Laurent Giraud, manager at Harry's New York Bar, which is actually in Paris, France. Legend has it, Harry's is the birthplace of the sidecar and the French 75 cocktails. And now Laurent's going to tell us about a new classic he has created. Hello, good evening, good evening, everyone. You heard the history, sir. What drink did it inspire? So we had the idea of... Like the French resistance, you know, they used to bomb bridges and bomb roads to give a hard time to the Germans. Sure, they bomb things to hassle the Germans. I thought about a drink which is very powerful, like a bomb. <laughs> All right. So we thought about uh, one of the ingredients should be cognac. Because of this time, those years are known in France as the uh, ladies' years. World War II? In World War II, yes, indeed. Because the men were at war, uh, ladies were taking over the, uh, the distillation. Oh, the women were distilling the cognac. Indeed, yes, indeed. Uh, that was a fact in, in cognac. So we thought about cognac. We thought, of course, about you guys coming over to Normandy. D-Day, Normandy. Yeah, D-Day. So as you know, Normandy is the uh, home place for producing Calvados, the apple, the apple spirit. Oh, Calvados it's called? Oh, yeah. It's like brandy, but on an apple. And then you have absinthe, and I'm sure you heard of it. Absinthe, yes. And then the juice of a lime. You shake all this. You pour it over the big highball full of crushed ice. And with the half part of the lime, you put it on a crushed ice. Okay, just to paint the picture here. So you've got a, a glass full of crushed ice with some liquor inside and a piece of lime peel on top. Indeed, yes. And you put a little piece of sugar, which is dipped in absinthe. So when you come to the table, you can light it up. Oh, you set it on fire? Like a bomb. <laughs> it's so powerful, it lights up like, uh, you know, like a bomb. Then you can say au revoir and you run away like he was going to explode. That seems kind of the, the opposite of what you want from a drink. You don't want people to run away from it. No, 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 the waiter is running away. <laughs> Laurent Giraud of Harry's Bar in Paris, France, with a cocktail he calls fittingly Le Au Revoir. <laughs> yes, which sounds almost as difficult to make as the movie it's based on. That's 
Correct. So it's kind of perfect. Uh, folks, we have blueprints for the construction of that explosive drink, along with all our other cocktail recipes. Dinnerpartydownload.org. And now this dinner party could use some music. So how about a playlist? That's what we asked of musician Kevin Morby. He is a former member of the indie bands Woods and the Babies. But lately, Buzz has been building around his solo music. He's currently touring behind his latest album, Still Life. Here he is with his list. Hello, this is Kevin Morby, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. First track is Django Reinhardt, a song called Georgia On My Mind. As a guitarist myself, when you listen to someone like him or someone like John Fahey, even though their styles are completely different, but they're kind of the masters of their craft, it's like watching a magician perform a trick or something. You, you can't even comprehend ever being able to play like that. And then it's amazing. The Django Reinhardt, I think two of his fingers were out of the mix. They were, they were paralyzed in a fire or something like that. And so that on top of it is just unbelievable. I've always said Django Reinhardt is the best music to cook to. From the moment that I, I first heard him, it was, it's like, it's amazing cooking music. Something about when it's on in the kitchen, it brings like a certain warmth to the room. In the context of a dinner party, it would be, you know, people would show up, some Django Reinhardt's playing, the host is like, I'm sorry, I'm still, you know, getting everything together, but have a seat, pour yourself a drink. The next song is called Wildwood by Steve Gunn. Wildwood is on his latest album, Way Out Weather. Steve Gunn is a uh, New York musician by way of Philadelphia. He's someone I'm proud to call a friend. There's something about when the vocals come in, because the guitars are so beautiful when it starts out. It comes on on a record, and it's the, it's the very obvious, like beautiful song. And it could almost exist on its own, just as a guitar piece, but then when the vocals come in, they're very, very powerful. so bad, the At this point in this hypothetical dinner, people will be sitting down, the food is all prepared, and the guests have all gotten to know one another a little bit. Something a little bit more contemporary, maybe a good conversation piece. I just think he's like a living legend. I think he's incredible. Third song, Pale Blue Eyes, Velvet Underground. When this comes on to the dinner party, I think things are sort of winding down. Sometimes I feel so happy. Sometimes I feel so sad. Sometimes I feel so happy. But mostly you just make me mad. You know, whether I'm at a show or I'm out to dinner at a friend's house, and this song comes on. I really get that really cheesy cinematic movie moment where I, I feel like <laughs> I'm watching a movie of my life. Linger on your pale blue eyes. It's one of those like special treasures in life. It's like I don't even listen to it too much at home because I like to just be surprised by it and be out somewhere in the the moment that little guitar lead comes in, the little tambourine hits, I like to just sort of watch the world around me freeze up and uh, be taken away by Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. If I had to uh, choose a song from my own album to close out the dinner party, 
I would choose Motors Running. Why you gotta cry in the morning? Baby, it's time to go. Motors Running, just a song about being in motion and uh, wanting to get to the next thing. It's one of those songs that I went in thinking it'd be a, an acoustic song. By the time the record was finished, it was kind of this rocker. The dinner party at this point is over, and maybe everyone's getting in their cars, they're going somewhere else, they're all still gonna hang out. The night's not over, but uh, the dinner party is. Dinner Party soundtrack from Kevin Morby. He's on tour now in support of his album Still Life. Check out dinnerpartydownload.org for more information. All right, coming up, actor Angelica Houston tells us her secret for making it in Hollywood. I've always been egotistical. Makes sense she kept it a secret. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Chef Gabrielle Hamilton says her food is no joke. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Angelica Houston. Her work in films like Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Grifters, and Enemies, A Love Story made her one of the most beloved actresses in Hollywood. She won an Oscar for her performance in Prizzy's Honor, in which she played a mob daughter in love with a hitman named Charlie, played by Jack Nicholson. Here's a clip from that movie in which she confronts Charlie about his feelings for her. You want to do it, Charlie? Is that what you want? Whoa. (laughs) Take it easy. What the hell, (laughs) May? Nobody took it slower than me, Charlie. Four years. Answer the question. You want to do it? Well, uh, yeah. So, let's do it. It's <laughs> pretty great. Amazing. This week, Angelica released the second volume of her memoirs, focusing on her life in Hollywood. It's called Watch Me. And a lot of the press around it is focused on her 17-year on-again, off-again romance with Nicholson. When we met, I asked her if that bothered her. Yeah, they, they seem to be pretty fixated on it. And, you know, they're, that's, they're not to be blamed for that. He's a very famous man, and, and I think people are, are very interested in him. Well, one of the things that has caused a lot of buzz is that in your memoir, you get the sense that he wasn't necessarily the greatest person to be in a relationship with. Well, it's he not was, fair to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, he, he is who he is. And actually, yes, he was a great person to have a relationship. He's funny. He's attractive. He has um, a lot of um, wonderful traits and and characteristics. Fidelity wasn't one of them, but Mm. you can't have everything, I don't think. And um, I really don't judge him on that. Well, I have to say that while reading this part of your book about your relationships with Jack and and Ryan O'Neill, I had that old feeling from, like, junior high school— you know, the the kind of artistically inclined asthmatic kid who was like, why do all the beautiful, cool girls like bad guys? And I mean, bad boys, not evil. Oh, you're a bad boy. You know you are. Perhaps. I bet you are. <laughs> Maybe a little bit now, you, but not when I was younger. Really not? Yeah, just because I have a Band-Aid on my eye, I look like a bad Did boy. Did you right get now. in a scrap? <laughs> I didn't. I With my dermatologist. Uh, the worst kind. <laughs> I know. But... 
what is it that makes those sorts of relationships attractive? Because, you know, people who tell us no, it's it's primal, isn't it? Someone says no and you want it. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how I operated for a while. You said no, I said why not? Yeah. So I, I'm happy to say that's no longer part of my repertoire. So at one point, you left your relationship with Jack and you were dating the actor Ryan O'Neill. It started because he saw you at a party and made a pass at you. And you write, quote, I should have known I was playing with fire but I was just self-centered and egotistical and needy enough to follow up with him. And I thought this was interesting because at this point, you don't have an acting career yet. What was the basis uh, of your ego and, and your self-centeredness? Like, where did that come from? I've always been egotistical. I'm at the center <laughs> of my world. <laughs> and if I weren't, I'd be in trouble, I think. Um, it's it's one of the things that sort of held me to the earth. Is that a strategy you think you had to adopt? I mean, growing up with no, a father? No, it's not was, a strategy. It's yeah. just pure selfishness. I think I probably learned it at home. My family were, I, no one was that much of a shrinking violet in I've my heard. family. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. And we it seems we like, all knew how to assert ourselves. Yeah, your father, John Houston, was not known for being passive. So this book covers your time in Hollywood. And of course, you met with great success. In 1985, you won an Academy Award for Pridzi's Honor. Speaking of your father, directed by him and co-starring Jack Nicholson, uh, you were in Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, The Grifters, The Adams Family, and so on. Before you arrived in California, you had been a model. So where did you learn how to act? Well, I had very artistic parents. And my father, of course, was, I think, also a, a wonderful actor as well as being a, a great director. My grandfather, Walter, was an actor. So I'm third generation. Yeah. And, and I just grew up that way. I grew up enacting scenes in the mirror and dressing up out of the dress-up hamper. And I loved movie stars. I, I particularly loved Sophia Lauren. That idea that you could be a sort of beautiful, exalted actress. That was, for me, profoundly to be wished. I thought that was really great. And as I mentioned before, you've worked with some of the best directors. You've worked with Francis Ford Coppola, not so long ago, Wes Anderson, and a couple of his films. What directing style works best for you? I like um, a director who trusts his actors or her actors. I like a director who will allow you to walk through a scene and see how you feel about it and where you want to be in the scene. I was I was speaking to an actress uh, yesterday who was talking, and she's on a television show, and she was saying that when she gets there in the morning, there are all white tapes on the floor where she's supposed to wind up in the scene. For me, that would be very, very difficult. I yeah. like to find my way in a scene. I think more and more for, for reasons of expediency and because everyone's in a hurry these days, a lot of the time <laughs> the actor's opinions aren't really considered as sure. they used to be. I think that's a sad state of affairs, frankly. It's interesting to hear you say that. that you worked with some auteurs, not just directors. Yeah. You know, Coppola and, and, and... I don't think Coppola would ever let that happen. Let what happen? Have an actor's moves pre predestined. Yeah. Oh, um, he re he would let you... Not just that, but with all the good directors, they allow you to find your place. Where yeah. would you be in a scene? What sure. chair do you want to sit in? Do you want to go to the window at this point, or do you want to st stay where you are? And if you're not allowed to find your own impulse as an actor, a performance is apt to get pretty empty. So your memoir ends with you talking about your experience working on the NBC show Smash, when you were offered the part, it wasn't too long after you'd lost your husband, the sculptor Robert Graham. 
um, and you were nervous about moving to New York. So you went to speak to legendary Hollywood agent Sue Mengers. She's like in a haze of marijuana smoke. Yeah, I was feeling very trepidatious, and I, I love Sue. She was something of an oracle to me, and, and she'd been everyone's agent except mine, actually. <laughs> and uh, I went to see Sue, and it was after I'd done the pilot for Smash, and it looked like it was going ahead. And I was still very nervous about moving to New York and my dogs and... Oh, la, la. Anyway, I said, Sue, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, it means I'm going to have to leave home, and this part is wonderful, but it's... And she gave me a long, appraising look, and she said, it's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess it was. The first year on Smash was really great. But is part of that, the miracle part of that also when you get to a certain age in Hollywood, it's often difficult to find work? Or is that what she was getting at? Or what? what? I think so. Um, and also, you, you know, let's face it, there are no parts for women in Hollywood. Forget a, a woman of a certain age. Mm. I, you know, I see more women with nothing to say on film than I've ever seen before. I remember going to a woman in film uh, gala, maybe in the 80s. Yeah. And all the women there were talking about, you know, how wonderful it was and what great gains they'd made in the industry and so forth. I think it's just the reverse. I think women have been completely forgotten by this industry. Hmm. Um, I just saw a wonderful movie the other day, Foxcatcher, but mm -hmm. Vanessa Redgrave and Sienna Miller are both in this movie, and I think between them they have three lines. Yeah. It's a pretty sad state of affairs for the girls out there. I wish I had a movie to cast you in immediately. Um, <laughs> I so wish you did, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk after this. Um, I just have our two standard questions to offer you, but since you've been here before, you've answered them already. And yet, I want to ask at least one of them to you again. What were they, and what did I say? So I only remember your answer to the second question. So the second question was, tell us something we don't know, something oh, you've never that. talked about I before. I remember what I said. Yes. Still my favorite. I still blush thinking about it, but still one of my favorite answers. Yeah. Still the same way. <laughs> so you said that you had a, quote, penchant for green underwear. I do, yeah. which I got from Peter O'Toole, who never went left the house without his green socks on. And I feel that it's very lucky. I won't get on a plane without my green underwear right. on. You don't like to fly. That's also something I don't I like about to in... fly. Mm. Although I'm better at it. I'm mm -hmm. touching wood. Mm -hmm. I like these new pods that they're putting um, right. on the, the, on the, the local flights. Stuff, they yeah. go flat. They're wonderful. Yeah. I can't sleep. There is a thing that you wouldn't know. Okay. I can't sleep if my feet are below my head. You need to be yes. perfectly horizontal. Exactly. What about the other way? Could you could your feet be above your Never head? Never tried it. Okay. That means space. Not I don't think space is for me, actually. <laughs> and folks, a while back, Rico interviewed Angelica about her work on Smash. That's right. Her early days as a fashion model. And yes, her colorful clothing choices. <laughs> That's at dinnerpartydownload.org, which is also where you'll find a picture of her with me, where I look like a, quote, bad boy the band-aid on my face yeah i didn't realize you'd had a procedure at the dermatologist that's true i thought you were just imitating nelly the rapper <laughs> <laughs> well it was getting hot in there but. 
All right, folks, now that we've met our guest of honor, I guess we should be on our best behavior. Oh, yes. So how about we have our weekly etiquette lesson? Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them today are our two expert etiquette aficionados. Ooh. That's right. I'm talking about Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post, co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette, which is awesome. And Lizzie Dan, hello. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. So amazingly, the holidays are almost upon us. I know. It's crazy. And <laughs> we have to wonder what sort of etiquette questions start coming in for you guys this time of oh, year. Oh, everything. We get everything from the classics, you know, entertaining questions. From holiday tipping. Holiday tipping starts kicking in now so that people know what to do come the end of the year. Well, what's an example of that? Like tipping your postman? No, you don't tip the postman because the government says that he should not be receiving tips. Really? <laughs> so that's not us. That is the government regulations. Wow, but you, you just ruined a lot of post people's <laughs> Christmases. You do, no, we get, believe it or not, that's actually some of the most hate mail we get is mm-hmm. when we put out that advice, which we have to put out because it is what, what the government is going to investigate. It is you? the regulations of the government? <laughs> Are they going to shut you down? What, can you tip radio hosts? Mm. Yes. Your service providers. Wait, no, podcast hosts. Yes. Both. <laughs> well, how about how about we give some tips to our audience? Nice transition. That's why I'm a professional. <laughs> First question comes from Gabriel in Lexington, Kentucky, and Gabriel writes: I work in a small office with just a few employees. We're all required to go to a meeting in another city about two hours away. Hmm. My boss has made it clear that he doesn't want anyone else driving with him. Since (laughs) I'm the only employee with a big car, I was chosen to drive everyone else to the meeting. No one's offered to pitch in for gas. Should I ask my coworkers or my boss for gas reimbursement? Or is this karma for getting a big SUV and destroying the environment? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Gabriel's self-aware. That's nice. I like it. I like it. The first thing I would say is, yeah, talk to your boss. Talk to your company about it because they should be – this is a a work trip. They should be reimbursing you. Most most businesses will reimburse you for miles. And if his company for some reason refuses to do it, which they shouldn't, he should definitely feel confident just saying, this is what I'm going to estimate for gas – or, you know, would like everyone to pitch in. And and, and I would say the sooner you have that discussion, the better. Yes. Try to do it before you're you're in the car with everybody and you're pulling into the gas station. Let people know ahead of time so that they're prepared. You're like, hey, guys, this obviously gets five miles to the gallon. <laughs> Who am I kidding? <laughs> everyone, please chip in. So it'll right. be $100 each. You chose yeah. my car. <laughs> Suckers. I love to think of all these employees in a monster truck. <laughs> uh, this next question comes from Eva from San Francisco. The question is, what is the proper etiquette for being a real lightweight at a bar. Why am I asking this question? I'm right with her. (laughs) I know. Maybe you should be asking this one, Rico. Uh, I can only handle one alcoholic drink before I'm done, and I want to keep it that way. But when I'm with a group, it's common and polite to take turns buying rounds for everyone, except I'm only going to participate in round one. So she has a couple questions. Do I buy my own drink and avoid the whole situation? Do I always buy round one but never benefit from the payback? Do I never buy round one, get my free drink, and never pay anyone back? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the one I'm going with. Yeah. I like three, but I think for me the answer is one. Buy your own drink, but don't participate in buying rounds. I think that if you're if you're not someone who's going to be um, participating in a lot of these rounds, then I don't 
see that there's any point for you to have to buy for everyone. However, if these are people you go out with regularly, you know, maybe oh. once every month or every couple of months, I would buy around for everybody. I like the spirit of that, just to, to keep participating. Mostly you can excuse yourself and do your own thing, but yeah. every once in a while, jump in and play the yeah. part. Yeah. Because the payback can come in ways other than just getting a reciprocal drink. Absolutely. Someone's going to want nachos eventually. <laughs> Ain't that always the way? <laughs> All right. Uh, here's something from David in North Liberty, Indiana. And David writes, I recently married a wonderful woman, and we had a beautiful but small ceremony with an invite list of 32 people. This left a lot of our friends and family uninvited. (laughs) We're looking for a way to show all the people we couldn't invite that they are special to us. Would something like hosting a party and inviting those who didn't make the cut be a good idea? Always. That is a very common practice. The one thing that you should remember is that um, no one is going to be expected or obligated to get you a gift if they are invited to the second party and not your Wait, wedding. Wait, what? <laughs> what? That's the whole reason you do this, right? Yeah. I mean, I love you right? guys. <laughs> David's like, great, we had 32 people and now I only have half my silverware. <laughs> if you really want the La Creuse kitchen set, you need to throw a party, right? You're really ascribing a lot of bad intentions to David in North Liberty. I'm not. Indiana. I'm just being honest. Like, when you get married, one of the benefits, free stuff, right? <laughs> but I I will say it does. It sounds, Lizzie, like you're saying that if you're invited to the expensive wedding, you reciprocate with a gift. Oh, wait a but second. But if you're invited to, you know, a cheap secondary party, uh, hello, you don't get welcome a, to. Oh, wow. Whoa, 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 whoa. Welcome now to the United getting, States of America. No, but you're blurring lines. There's nothing that says that his 32-person wedding was expensive. Well, that's true. There's nothing mm, that says a wedding true. has to be expensive. Or that and a true second party. Let's clear up a really big rule right now. Your gift does not buy your plate at a wedding. You bu- mm. you get a gift that is exactly what you can afford. But the idea is that when you celebrate such a big moment in life, like getting married, it comes with so much more importance than inviting someone to just the party afterwards. All right, so if you were a secondary friend who wasn't important enough <laughs> to be invited to the wedding, you don't have to bring a gift. Yeah, didn't make the cut. Well, yeah, free booze and food. Why not? If something goes wrong in your marriage, don't call me. Exactly. All right, there you go. I'm glad we solved that, David. Congratulations, David. Best wishes. Yes. Here's our last question. It comes okay. from AJ in Kalamazoo, Michigan. AJ writes, when someone has you over and makes you dinner, is there a limit to how much you should eat? I was at a dinner party after working a long day and exercising, and I ended up refilling my plate with delicious tacos more than once. Been there. Everyone got enough, but afterwards, I wondered if it was rude to eat so much, since I cut into what could have been leftovers for them. Oh. Oh, this is, I have my answer. That's, it seems like AJ's being too nice, right? He, you, you, he is. You, you don't need to worry about saving leftovers for your host. You don't want to appear to be a pig. You don't want to be sitting there filling up your plate again and again and again while everyone sits around and watches you eat. But, but that the sounds concern... like my average Friday night. I was going to say, in my household, the Croatian side of my family, this is the biggest act of love you can do is to continue to eat That's and right. eat and eat. Well, but... Croatian family members aside, <laughs> you, you don't want to outstrip everyone else that you're that you're eating with. At, at the same time, of course, you're, you're meant to be able to feel comfortable eating what's being served, yep. and definitely if it's been offered, have a second helping. And if it's really giving your host a lot of pleasure, in particular, continue to eat and enjoy. A, a little self awareness will help navigate that. All right, there you go. Just in time for Thanksgiving, permission to eat from yeah. our experts, <laughs> Lizzie Post and Daniel Post. Sending thanks so much for telling our audience how to. Behave. Sounds good. Hey, thanks so much for having us, guys. 
Lizzie and Daniel, there you have it. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette. That show is part of the podcast network Infinite Guest, as are we. You can learn more at infiniteguest.org. All right, coming up, we speak with chef and award-winning writer Gabrielle Hamilton, and we chat with Glenn Johns, a gentleman who had Mick Jagger and John Lennon on Speed Dial. Before there was Speed Dial. Pre-Speed Dial. <laughs> All of that and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Glenn Johns, the second person on earth to ever hear George Harrison's song, Something. The first was George. That's right. We should note. But right now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and this week, I spoke with someone who knows a thing or two about that subject, Gabrielle Hamilton. She is the chef and owner of Prune, for 15 years one of the most celebrated and idiosyncratic restaurants in New York City. Her best-selling memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter, won a James Beard Award for Best Food Writing. And this week, she released her first cookbook, aptly titled Prune, which contains annotated versions of the recipes she gives her line cooks, among other things. I started by asking her about the first recipe, canned sardines on Triscuit crackers. Hmm. The main instruction being to avoid arranging the sardines on the plate in a, quote, restaurant-y way. It's funny because it's not an irony at all. I don't have an ironic bone in my body. I'm yeah. cynical and jaded, yes, in certain ways, <laughs> but um, I'm kind of last of the earnest people. And that but, recipe, if you want to call it that, <laughs> open a can of sardines. I lived on sardines through some very starving times. I was in New York City. I was living out of a jar of change. I was 16 years old, and yeah. that was 35 cents at the bodega. Mm. So it means a lot to me, and now I find it very delicious, and it's the greatest source of protein. So, it, yeah, it's not a joke. It's not um, an affectation, like Absolutely. PBR, that kind of thing <laughs> that people do. The, the other thing is I'm trying not to have a restauranty restaurant, so I always... I often have to ask the cooks to make the food look normal and not gaspable. I don't want well, the food to go down and you have to sort of stop your conversation for 15 minutes to admire what I've done. I just want the food to look good enough that it's appetizing and appealing um, and no more. Not intrusive. To me, though, I first of all, I agree with all of that, and I'm sincere in saying that I really want to eat it right now. <laughs> You're earnest, too. <laughs> I'm absolutely earnest about sardines, as anyone who's heard this show knows. But this recipe does call into question the idea of what makes something fine dining. What, in your opinion, is the key? What separates this from, you know, what you would do at home? Well, you know for sure that Prune has no ambition toward fine dining and couldn't possibly be categorized as fine dining. We have wobbly tables and all the coffee cups are chipped. We are excellent dining and delicious dining, uh-huh. but we are not fine dining. But if you dig into that book and if you come to Prune, you know that we also do things that are 37 steps long. And oh, yeah. not everything is just popping open a can. For sure. Well, this... <laughs> but the food at Prune is very personal. And it's food that I know very intimately from a lifetime of being up close to it or having eaten it in an originating source. I don't make anything on the menu sort of... Um, 
learned in a stainless steel kitchen or mm -hmm. um, conceived in a dream. <laughs> if I'm I roasting wanna... lamb, it's because we grew up roasting lamb. If I'm opening a can of sardines, because I survived on sardines. The restaurant in the book is kind of, it's you. It's really your personality and the things that you like. To what extent were you surprised at the success of Prune? Does it surprise you that there are so many people that are willing to follow you on that ride? Eventually, that became normal to me. But of course, in the beginning, I was very shocked and surprised when anyone <laughs> walked in the door. And I would always light up with confusion, like, wow, <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Did you find anything in common with those people beyond the, the food taste? Well, I think that's actually what happens. I mean, I'm not even sure Prune's really a restaurant. It's really just a litmus test. <laughs> Of a universe wow. that, do we all want to live in this particular universe? Interesting. It's like a community builder. Yes. That's in a strange way and a very disparate way. It always amazes me when I look out at the dining room and I see a over 70-year-old couple, highly polished and groomed on their way, you know, to the theater. <laughs> and sitting next to them is some pierced and tattooed lesbian couple with blue <laughs> hair and... Um, body odor. <laughs> what is your food the only thing that unites those two people, do you think? Or is there some other kind of trait that they share? There's some gestalt in there. I have never been able to name it. It's sort of the X factor of restaurant success. You can have the right food, the right lighting, the pretty girl at the door. You can have the good wine list, etc. And you can just tank. But um, mm. there's that little intangible. I don't know what it is, but we're 15 years old. It's in prune. You mentioned that you've been around for 15 years. And increasingly something I've been thinking about, especially lately in New York City, so many bastions and standbys have been closing. What keeps Prune open? Yeah, 15 years, it's like 244 yeah. in restaurant years, I guess. Increasingly, it's probably more. Yeah. Um, we're small and we're consistent. I think if you have looked at the cookbook, it could be said that I'm a little scolding <laughs> in the instructions, that there's a lot of... Um, admonishments. I think that's another word that's been used if you look at my comments in the book. But um, that's true. inconsistency is, in fact, the surest death knell of a restaurant. I think you can be consistently terrible and stay in business mm. sooner than you can be inconsistent in your quality. So the whole point of haranguing line cooks is because I need the girl who cooks it on Friday to cook it the same as the guy who cooks it on Tuesday. All those recipes are designed to keep are written in a way to keep the product exactly like what we want it, year in, year out. That is a, a, That kind of answers a paradox that I saw in some of these recipes, too. There's, you know, the second recipe in this book is basically radishes with butter and salt. But it is extremely—you say, first of all, that you've seen some of those go out in a way that you don't like the way it looks. Even though it's radishes with butter and salt, that's basically all it is. It's very unfussy food in some ways that is prepared exceedingly fussily. I know. It's only three ingredients, but I want my radish quite crisp with burn, and I want my butter— cool and waxy, and I want the salt on there at the end to bring back the kind of flame from the radish that the butter tamped down in a way, sort of tamed. I can tell you, you know, this is why you won a James Beard Award for writing as well. I, can, I would not have ever used the word flame to describe a radish. To me, it's like a cooling, it's like the opposite. It's this cooling disc of refreshment. Oh, you're eating the wrong radishes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. should be eating a prune more often. <laughs> Um, you were known for a long time 
for helping to popularize bone marrow as a dish. My understanding is one of the reasons that you got into bone marrow in the first place was practical. It's cheap. You could sell it expensively and kind of underwrite a cheaper, say, steak on the menu or something like that. It's true. The poor marrow bone, which my butcher used to give to me for free, now is, I don't know, three twenty-five a pound or something like that. This whole nose-to-tail eating fiendishness, this, this trend, <laughs> is so funny because I think now it's become nose and tail only. <laughs> and I'm like, whatever happened to the pork chop? What, yeah. the, poor, the poor loin has been left behind. Here, give me a filet, for God's sake. <laughs> But I guess my question is, what is the next bone marrow? Like, what is the, the cheap, underused ingredient that's also excellent? Well, if you just leaf through the garbage section of the cookbook, of things um, sure. that usually get thrown away, you're going to start to throw away the sardine just to get the skeleton, just to have the spine so you can deep fry it and have the french fries. I mean, I'm not really predicting a new trend. I'm just making a joke. But sometimes the thing that you were to throw away, it becomes the thing you most desire. Gabrielle Hamilton, her lovely new cookbook is called Prune. Just to reiterate, a lot of these recipes do have more than three ingredients. Uh, in fact, some of her notes are designed, she says, to help chefs keep their energy up when they're in the middle of executing a dish that requires 37 separate steps. Note one, skip steps one through 35. <laughs> <laughs> you would have a shorter cookbook. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you can hear Brendan's interview with Gabrielle about her memoir from a while back. It's in our archives at dinnerpartydownload.org. Chances are, if you listen to any other radio station on the FM dial today, you've heard the work of Glenn Johns. He was the sound engineer and occasional producer of some of the most popular rock songs in the world, from artists like the Rolling Stones, the Eagles, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, Neil Young, and so many others. He just wrote a book about his experience, and it's called, aptly enough, Sound Man. And he joins us this week. Glenn, just to kind of give people a sense of what this book is like and what your life was like, I want to talk about one kind of anecdote that okay. happens in the middle of the book. You just recorded an album with Steve Miller in L.A., and you were in San Francisco, staying with Jan Wenner, the editor of Rolling Stone. Yeah. And you were going to Georgia to see the Allman Brothers, and then you flew on to New York, where you guys ran into Bob Dylan at the airport. Yeah, uh, it was a chance meeting. Uh, we got off the plane and went to the baggage hall to collect our bags, Jan Wenner and I. He saw Dylan standing in the baggage hall and went over and started talking to him. And I, since I'd never met him and didn't know him, I let them get on with it and got my bags and went and stood outside. Jan brought him over to meet me outside on the sidewalk. We had a very pleasant chat. He was very complimentary about my work with the Stones and so on. And I, in turn, of course, was very complimentary about what he'd contributed <laughs> to, uh, to music in general in the previous 10 sure. years or whatever. Anyway, he said, um, I've had this idea for some time now. And I, I, perhaps you can help me pull it off. And he wanted to make an album with the Stones and the Beatles. The superest of super bands. Well, yes. I mean, it would have been a bit odd, really. But anyway, well, it never happened. So, uh, but but he asked me if I could f help him facilitate that. So when I got back to England, I called everybody in the Beatles and I called everybody in the Stones and put the idea to them. And Paul, right? And Paul and Mick ultimately objected. Paul, right? Paul and Mick didn't did, were not in the least bit interesting, and I'm sure they were quite right. You know, they they were very sensible about it. I'm sure. But what's incredible about that story is, first of all, the pace of your life during that time, and then, of course, you have the phone numbers of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You were at the in the center of everything, and now a little 
of that is right place, right time, to be sure. But what are the qualities that allowed you to be there? Why did all these people want to work with you, and how did you get the opportunity to work with them? Well, you'd have to ask them to, to get an honest answer to that. It's terribly difficult for me to know. If you I, can arrange that, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, one project leads to another. I was fortunate enough to work with some really innovative artists hmm. who... I, their good fortune I sort of became attached to as a result of far more their skills than mine. Um, <laughs> I have some theories. <laughs> maybe I can, maybe I can uh, introduce well, okay. them to you. <laughs> uh, because I anticipated this kind of uh, classic uh, British modesty. So I, I think it comes down to a couple things. And to correct me if I'm wrong, reading your book, I learned these things. First of all, you, you never did drugs. Is that true? That is absolutely true. So I'm guessing that you were sometimes or often the clearest thinker in the room. Yes, but I think oftentimes those, those, the other people in the room were so out of it they wouldn't have even noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that has any bearing on anything, hmm. really. All right, fair enough. <laughs> but your skills as a sound engineer were obviously noticed. Uh, you made many lasting contributions. For example, with The Who, when they were recording Don't Get Fooled Again, it was your idea to mesh Pete Townsend's demos of the synths into the recording. Is that right? We did steal the, the synthesizer part from mm. and play that to the band to play to. I think it was quite a complicated thing for him to put down initially. It took him quite a long time. and, I, and There was no need for him to redo it all. Mm. It would have taken far too long. So we took what he'd already done for the demo and we, we just edited it to make it a little more concise. also created a unique way of recording drums that is now known as the Glenn Johns method. There are lots of videos of it on YouTube, how to set it up. Uh, and you discovered this when recording Led Zeppelin's first album, right? Yeah. Um, what happened on the Led Zeppelin, first Led Zeppelin album, was I discovered by a pure error of my own uh, stereo drums. And it happened because you were, you had taken the mic off to record something else and then you forgot to switch the channel or something? Exactly. We cut a track and we decided we'd overdub an acoustic on it, I think. The microphone that I was using on the top of the drums, I took that away and put it up for Jimmy Page to play acoustic guitar. We did that in 20 minutes or however long it took. And I'd assigned that microphone to one side of the stereo, mm. and then I put the microphone back on the drums to start the next track. And when I lifted the faders up, when I got back in the control room, John Bonham was playing, and, and so half the drums were coming out of the, the left, and uh, half were coming out of the middle. I thought, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Oh, what would happen if I put the one that's in the middle on the right? And there we are, that was, and we got this monster drum sound. So some of the best parts of this book are the moments in between recording sessions. Um, in a way, you are also 
kind of a sounding board, forgive the pun, uh, for some of these great musicians. I, I want to play a clip of something you recorded for George Harrison uh, while you were working with the Beatles on Let It Be. At the end of a session, he asked if he could play you a song, and you recorded it. Here it is. Something in the way she moves Attracts me like no other lover Something in the way she woos me I don't want to leave her now You know I believe in how So I think that's the actual demo that you recorded in 1969. Wow, where'd you get that? I found it online. Good Lord. It's gorgeous. I didn't know that existed. Well, it obviously existed somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Amazing. Great song. Do you remember when he presented that to you? I remember it very clearly. He, he, I suppose he, he was not feeling as confident as he might about presenting material to the others. And so he asked if I'd stay behind when everybody left in order for me to record that for him. And... I just sat there with my jaw on the floor. I thought it was an amazing song. And he came in and asked me what I thought of it, which I thought was pretty <laughs> extraordinary. And I said, oh, I said, it's a load of rubbish. You don't want to do anything with that. <laughs> anyway. If, so. if you said that, you could have changed the course of history. No, yeah, well, well good Lord alive. The mind boggles. Um, obviously, I told him it was amazing and that he should definitely not feel concerned in any way about playing it to the others. Great song great song it really is exquisite and it's fascinating to think that you were there to shape it and so many of these other great rock songs well you know what it's it's all very it's you're making it sound very glamorous i i i was the recording engineer on the session and it was part of my job i did him a service glenn johns his new book is called sound man which I think was his idea, but I'm guessing the subtitle was foisted upon him by his editors. Really? It's My Life with the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, Eric Clapton, and then there's an ellipsis. <laughs> That'd be a good band name, though, Ellipsis. Only three like members it. allowed. It's a trio. <laughs> uh, folks, that is the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, we hear from Asif Mandvi from The Daily Show, Brian Ferry from Roxy Music, it's true, and many more. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Charlton Thorpe engineered this week's show. Brittany Martin is our digital assistant. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And folks, the party doesn't stop when our hour is up. There's all sorts of bonus fun 24-7 on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. You can also catch us anytime on iTunes or at InfiniteGuest.org, a new hub of arts and culture podcasts where you'll bump into fascinating hosts like Sherman Alexi. That's InfiniteGuest.org. Till next time, bon appétit.